If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to continue our look at this epistle from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, a church that was made up of both Gentiles and Jews who were struggling to come together and get over their racial and ethnic and cultural barriers and worship God in one new humanity, what we've called a new humanity. And uh, Paul spends three chapters in this book of the six, almost exactly half, describing who we are as believers in Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, what he's describing is our new identity because we are now born again. We are born anew. We have been born anew by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so into this uh, new humanity, into this new reality, uh, are thrust many different people from many different backgrounds. They have to get along somehow. And it's not easy. All you have to do is look around in, in our world today, the polarization that we see not only in our own country, but in the world globally. Uh, people have a very hard time getting along with one another. There's hatred that uh, uh, is so extreme that sometimes it boggles our minds. And yet we know if we look carefully that that same hatred is resident in each one of us. We carry it around with us uh, like a, a virus. And unless you take the truth of the gospel and you begin to apply it to every part of your life and, and, and proactively suppress that hatred and venom. You will find yourself angry at political parties, angry at the president, angry at Congress, angry at uh, terrorist groups to the extent that we will dehumanize those people. Dehumanize them. And that's something that we've got to be very careful of. And the Apostle Paul was in that same environment, no different. In fact, it may have been worse than, than anything we know now. And yet he insisted that we look with love and concern upon each other and everyone else in a certain way. Not to excuse their sin or misdeeds, but to approach it from a different place, a new humanity. And in these next four chapters, he is going to lay out new standards of living, a new lifestyle for this new humanity. And uh, most of us are comfortable either in chapters 1 through 3. We love hearing about the indicatives, what we are and how God loves us and all of that and, uh, and all the great things He's done for us and in us. And uh, some people are very comfortable in the imperatives that are about to come. Here's your list. Here's your to-do list. And that's exactly what Paul does. Whichever side that you're in, uh, I hope to try to make you uncomfortable and push against uh, that comfort so that you can see perhaps where uh, your reliance is. So let's look at these verses. Chapter 4, I'm going to only read, even though in your bulletin I've printed 1 through 16, that text is going to be with us for the next few weeks. I'm only going to read the first six verses which form a sort of a, a, a little grouping that we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1, hear God's Word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Paul begins right away with an imperative. I urge you, I beseech you, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have now received. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have now received. Listen carefully if you are following along in your text, when he says walk in a manner worthy, he is now switching gears and he's saying here is what you must do. He's going to go from who you are to what you must do. You must walk in a manner worthy. But look at how he phrases it. He says you're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's the who. That's He's... He's, he can't let go of the, of the indicative, if you will, of what you are and what God has done in you. In fact, he'll come back to it over and over again to lay one layer of foundation upon the others because, folks, look, our hearts, the way that we are wired after the fall, after sin kind of takes a hold in our lives, is we want desperately, desperately, we want to contribute something to the work of God's kingdom in our lives. Which is good. In fact, I'm going to tell you that's good unless it becomes a condition for God's acceptance of you. And Paul will not let go of this. He drives it home in this letter. He drives it home in the book of Romans. He drives it home in the book of Colossians. He is unrelenting in insisting that you and I never forget that who we are made by God in His image, that restoration of His image, when He comes into your life and He changes who you are, that that must always be preeminent in your life and that everything else that you do after that is a response to His grace. That you are never ever going to merit or earn His his favor. His acceptance of you, listen, is not ever conditioned on your good or bad behavior. Right? Wouldn't you... Now look, let's be honest. This is a small group. I don't want anybody to raise their hand. But who in their right mind would want God to accept them on their merits? If you're honest, if you really are looking deeply. Now, I know there are people, I've talked to them, I've been that person, where I want to hold something out and say, yeah, but what about this? I mean, really, I did, didn't, isn't this worth something? And it's not that God says to us, no, you're, what you do is worthless. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't compromise my love for you. Don't conditionalize my love for you by what you have done. Rather, look at my love for you. Listen, folks, this is the Gospel. Look at my love for you always based on what I have done. 
Can I get an amen for that? God, look at that. Let that drill that down into your heart because that, folks, cannot be taken away. The other can be taken away. You can have a bad day tomorrow. And I guarantee some of you will. And you can fail Him miserably. Then what? But instead, He says, ground your actions in My love for you, not your performance. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe Dr. Ferguson. The Apostle Paul is not suggesting we merit grace, but rather, listen, this is brilliant, rather the opposite. God's grace produces a new life and with it a new lifestyle. That's worthy. That's fitting. That's appropriate to that new identity. In other words, the old saying goes, our walk matches what? Our talk, our words, and our deeds are, are uh, appropriate to one another. We're not talking one thing and acting another way. New humanity, new standards for that new humanity. Look, folks, let me tell you something. The world is begging for this. It is waiting to see a Christian really who believes the Gospel. If you want to know what your marching orders are from the Bible, it is live your faith. Live what you believe. Integrity. In other words, it's a wholeness of life that will make you healthy. Not healthy necessarily physically, but healthy in your mind, in your body, in your soul, in in your being. The wholeness of you will be integral. It will be integrated. And we talked about this some months ago as well when part of our problem as human beings is we are disintegrated. And so we lack peace, we lack joy, we lack love. There's all kinds of things that we struggle that should come more naturally to us. And Paul is going to lay out for you what you are, who you are, and what you're going to do that will bring, if you will listen to him, if you will actually embrace it, will bring integrity to your life. The world is begging to see our theology, and you all know how much I love theology, The world is looking for our theology to be lived, not just talked about. If it's just talked about, it becomes monstrous, it becomes evil, and it becomes clanging noise and and banging cymbals, the Apostle Paul said in the first book of Corinthians. It means nothing until your actions and your, your lifestyle matches what God has done for you. And so let's get into it very quickly. He's going to give us, in these first few verses, some baby steps. You know, if you've ever... None of us remember learning to walk, right? Unless you're extraordinarily imaginative, because I can promise you, you didn't learn to walk. But unless you learned it much later. But when you were an infant, when you learned to walk, you didn't know what it was like. But parents remember what it's like. We look at those little kids, they're stumbling around, you're helping them, they have to take baby steps... Look at what the Apostle Paul considers a baby step. What he calls a baby step. I'm going to give you three. Humility and gentleness. These three actually form couplets, and I'm going to keep them that way. Humility and gentleness. That's the first one. Second one is patience and love. 
patience and love, gentleness and humility, patience and love, unity and peace. These are the first three steps that He wants us to take as a new creation, as new people. And I find it very interesting that He chose these. And I hope you will too. Look at humility uh, first of all. Humility, this word means a lowliness of mind. Here's a, a, from one of the commentaries. A lowliness of mind which string, springs from a true estimate of oneself. A true estimate of one's self. In other words, there's a deep sense in you of your own moral smallness and demerit. In other words, we recognize our spiritual poverty. So humility at its very core is someone who can look inside and look. You may be the greatest a doctor, lawyer, engineer, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. You may be the greatest at your thing. And that's good. And you should be proud of that in a very good way, in a healthy way. You should be proud of that. I've achieved a certain thing and I have gifts. That's all fine, all good. Nothing wrong with that. But when he's saying when you come to your moral uh, rectitude, you are to recognize a humble person will recognize their smallness and their demerit. In other words, while we are tempted to say, you know, I'm not as bad as the next guy. In fact, I'm better than most people and, and I'm certainly better than you, we might say to somebody, right? But look, there are many people are on the face of the earth. Six billion? We can probably find five billion that are better than you. Right? And so what we have to be careful of is to start measuring ourselves by ourselves. The standard is nothing less than, listen, this should cause you to squirm a little bit, perfection. The standard is moral perfection. In other words, you do not break God's law anytime ever in thought, word, or deed. And that must got to weigh heavy on you. People that, that get into trouble are those people that start to excuse their sin. And say, well, you know, I can't help it. Or this is just the way I was made. This is the way I was born. Or this is because of my parents. I can promise you that all of my problems are becoming my mom and dad. They're here today. So I'm saying, I'm, I just risked a lot. Actually, the truth is no. It's not because of my mom and dad. The problem is it's because of me. And even when I was a little kid, I loved playing those games that kids play, you know, pitting people against others and parents against parents. And we learned to do it early, early on. We can't blame anybody. It's a lowliness, a spiritual poverty. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying their inheritance is the kingdom of heaven. Be poor in spirit. In other words, recognize your spiritual poverty and you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Some now, all then. Amazing promise from our Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis, you've heard me say this before. C.S. Lewis said humility, listen, is not thinking less of yourself, that's false humility, false pride. 
It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, you are not the center of the universe. Right? Any of you are living under the illusion that you're still the center of the universe? Well, you're not. We are people, human beings, creatures. We're not the center of the universe. Jesus Christ is what? Lord. He is. If there is a center to the universe, it's Him. So humility is not thinking less. It's not beating yourself down. It's not demeaning, oh, I'm no good for nothing. I'm a worm. I'm the most terrible human being. I'm a sinner. I'm awful. I'm this, I'm that. Yes, you are a sinner. But not by nature. You're a Christian. You're now a new creation. Yes? Everybody tracking with me? That always raises problems. Everybody okay? If you're not, we'll talk about it after. It's seeing yourself as God sees you. How does He see you? Ask yourself this question. How does God see you? Let me tell you how He does not see you. He does not see you according to how much money is in your checkbook. Right? Not see you according to how little money is in your checkbook. He doesn't look at the degrees or the letters behind your name. He's not looking at your career. He's not looking at your education. He's certainly not looking at your looks. Because those are very temporary. They change almost daily, right? As you get older, they really change daily and sometimes by the moment. So he's not... He's not looking at you as you look. He's not looking at you uh, by uh, the education you may have. I mean, we could go on and on. He's not doing that. He's not looking. He's looking at you this way. Listen carefully. I'm going to tell you a secret. God is looking at you this way. Here's how He sees you right now. A desperately lost sinner enslaved to sin who needs grace, who needs salvation. Somebody who has not just drowning, you're not just struggling in the ocean trying to, say, you know, trying to get by. You have drowned. You are dead in your sins, the Apostle Paul said. You're lost. You're under the water. You're down at the bottom. You're a sinner in need of Salvation, grace. You're somebody who needs, who was dead, but needs life. That's how he looks at people. And then he looks at you a second way. Here's the second. He looks at you first that way. Second, here's how he sees you. And he does these in some weird, mysterious way, both at the same time. I don't really get it. But here's how he does it. He also looks at you as beloved Children, those of you that have children know that you would give your life for your children. They are the most precious thing to you. And that's how God is looking at you with all of your mess and all of your junk. I don't know how He looks. I'm amazed each day. I look at myself and go, how in the world could He possibly love me? I'm the most surprised. But He does. At the same time, He looks at me as a sinner. But at the same time, He looks at me justified as someone whom He he loves. Tim Keller famously said that when I first heard this 15 years ago, I almost came out of my skin. I was so excited. Cheer up! Cheer up! 
you are far more sinful and weak and evil than you ever dared to believe. But cheer up. You are far more loved, more valued, and more accepted than you ever dared to dream. At the same time, true humility, folks, will free us uh, to be honest and transparent with God. In other words, your prayers will become more robust. You'll be able to step into God's presence without the fear and intimidation and thinking, oh, He's going to hate me and all that. No, it will take you in lowly. In other words, you will stand before Him low in your own estimation. And at that point, He will reach down and lift you up and make you high in His estimation. In other words, you will, you will see yourself, listen, you will see yourself reflected in His eyes. Have any of you ever had that happen where you've got your, your baby and you're holding your baby or maybe, maybe your husband or wife or, you know, you're, you're, look, you're gazing into one another's eyes and if you look close enough, you can see there like in a mirror an image in their eye of you. That is belovedness. You are the apple of His eye. The reflection is what it means in His eye. It removes fear. True humility, it's scary to do it, but when you do, when you enter into true humility, it will remove fear, it will restore joy, you'll find your identity, you'll see yourself in His eyes. His strength becomes our strength. It's a cure for pride, that sin, sickness of pride that seems to grind us down. It will remove that. It's an intense energy that will come into your life. Humility, it's counterintuitive. We think, oh no, if I'm humble, I'm really going to get trampled on. No, you will not be trampled on. You will be lifted up. The King will reach down and lift you up. Imagine that image. True humility will take you places and it will produce genuine gentleness. In other words, people, listen, People who are basically insecure. People who are basically insecure typically thrive on control, approval. Uh, they need lots of attention. They're these high-maintenance people. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And consequently, they cannot be gentle. In fact, most of those people are very rough, very harsh, they demand your attention. They demand you to be patting them on the back all the time. You're the greatest. You're the greatest. Thank you, thank you, thank you. They want to be the center. of. They want to control everything around them. They're totally uh, without, uh, they're uncomfortable without control. But true humility will take you to gentleness or what the Bible calls meekness. And what it is, Dr. John Stott gives this definition. I thought it was the best of all that I found and so I'm bringing it to you. Gentleness and meekness, Stott says in this context, is this. It is a strong personality, a strong sense of identity, a strong strength inside. Who are master, listen, master of themselves, but servant to others. 
In other words, you are so confident and so strong that you can actually be gentle. You can afford to be gentle. Look, married couples, if we just, this one thing, if we just would apply this in our marriages, our marriages would take off. They would go onto uh, turbo. A person who is strong and confident in their relationship with God will be naturally gentle and spacious and and open with others. We won't need to control them. We won't need to control things around us. And humility coupled with gentleness actually shapes, it's the first baby step of your relationship with God. If you don't have that down, if you are saying, you know, I really do not have a grip on this humility and gentleness thing, then please, don't go read Lewis Burkhoff. Don't get out the systematic. Don't get out a bunch of commentaries. Don't try to read the Institutes of Christian Religion. Because you won't understand a word you're saying. Or they're saying. You must embrace true humility and true gentleness. Take that first baby step in your life as a Christian. And some of us that have been Christians a long time, I came to Christ when I was 18. I've been a Christian a long time, and as I was writing this sermon, I realized I need to go back to the basics. I need to learn more. True humility. I need to learn to be gentle like this. Meekness. True gentleness and meekness. R.C. Sproul says this in his commentary, Arrogance seeks to humiliate, express disdain, and show contempt for others. Now look, I'm going to be very hard with you right now. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you honestly to think of three people that you hold in contempt, that you disdain, that you do not like, that you just cannot stand. Go ahead. Don't say I don't have three. In fact, some of you are going to have to work hard to pare down the number to three. All right. Keep going. Think. I'll do the Jeopardy song. Dun, 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 dun. Think, think, think. Three people. Now, here's the challenge. Make it right. Make it right. If you can, if it's not going to cause more trouble, go to that person and say, you know, I've been harsh, I've been cruel to you. It may be your spouse, it may be a child, it may be somebody else. But you go to them if you can. Sometimes you just need to do it quietly and internally. But if you're able and if it needs to be done, you might need some help, you do it actually. Humility and gentleness. You go to that person, I'm sorry, I have not treated you well. Maybe it's an employee. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. But that's the challenge. Paul is not saying you just think about it. Oh, that's nice and move on. No, no. Humility and gentleness is the first step. You must do it. You must take an eye challenge. You would do it with three people. And maybe there are two people that, maybe it's somebody that's dead and gone that you were hard to and mean to. Ask God to forgive you. Do, like Charles Stanley. He said, take that person. Dr. Stanley. You all know who Charles Stanley is? Everybody on earth knows. So... Dr. Stanley says, you, let's say you can't talk to them personally. Maybe you can't. You put them in a chair, you pretend they're there. And you tell that person in that chair, I, I, I was terrible to you. I hurt you. 
I was proud and arrogant and I crushed you and I, was, I hold you in disdain and contempt and you're not... Whatever it is, God, please forgive. And first ask them to forgive. And then God forgive me. And you will find yourself getting free. Practice. Do it. Paul said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And that's what he's asking you to do. Secondly, very quickly, let's look at patience bearing with one another in love. You see, and you'll see how these are grouped together and why they're all in a, in a row. He's not saying you separate humility and gentleness from patience and bearing. They go together. They're in, integrated and, and connected. So he's talked about humility and gentleness. Now he's going to talk about patience and bearing with them. Patience means, and, and this he used, there are several words in Greek for patience. He uses a specific word that means this. Putting up with difficult and aggravating people. Putting up with difficult, aggravating people. Not putting up with people that are easy to love. Putting up with the difficult people, the aggravating people, the people that you're tempted to hold in contempt, the people that you're tempted to look down your nose at. He's saying be patient with them. Take a long-term view. In other words, you're going to see people as God sees you, as a work in process. And so you're going to be patient and tolerant and spacious. We talk about this in the journey all the time. Being spacious, making rumors so that you're not prickly. You, do you want to be known as being a porcupine? No, of course not. Doesn't everybody want to be known as a what? Not a porcupine, but a teddy bear. You want folks to see you as someone they can come to and they can rest in that you're not going to prick them and stick them. You're not like a, a cactus, you know, they can't get near you. That's patience, putting up with them. And bearing in love, this word, it's one word, it's the old, the old word for forbearance. Some of you will know what forbearance is. The English Standard Version translates it bearing in love, but it's a specific word and it means just what I said, tolerance spaciousness, and emotional calm in the face of provocation. Both words have to do with people that are really getting on your nerves and pushing your buttons and provoking you. And when someone provokes us, when someone does something evil or hard to us, the first thing we retaliate and then we say, I had a right. Yes? I had a right to be mad. After all, what they did to me was not fair. Well, let me just tell you what Jesus said to you said about that. Jesus said this, boo-hoo. That's exactly what He said, boo-hoo. Poor you. No, here's what He really said. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Bless your enemies. Because, listen, because when you do... You're doing nothing more than what the prophets used to do. You're standing in good company when you take that posture. You know, let, let them do what they will. Gary reminded us a few weeks ago, why can't, in 1 Corinthians, Paul was aghast at the Corinthians. He said, why don't you let yourselves be defrauded? Why are you always defending yourselves? Why are you so quick to run down to the courthouse and take your brothers and sisters to law? Why? Let yourself be defrauded. What are you afraid of? Well, they might get something from me. Well, so what? Where's your treasure? 
Do you see what Paul is doing? He's pushing hard. And he doesn't, he's saying, these are the baby steps. You don't get these. We don't need to move on to how to have a great marriage. In chapter 5, forget about it. You'll never get there until you find out about gentleness and humility, patience, bearing with one another in love. Patient bearing always keeps in mind that God is at work in other people the same way He was in work with you. You know, God has always, I don't know about you folks, but every time I go to Him and I, can, I have made messes, I don't even want to tell you. If I told you even some of my messes, everyone would be running for the door screaming. So I don't want to tell you. I, I want you all to stay here and have coffee. But think about it, folks. We are all, if, if you had seen a snapshot of my life 15, 20 years ago, you would have said, oh my goodness, how in the world? Yeah, right? I'm a work in progress. Look at me. Look at how glorious I've become. <laughs> all right, a little humor. Like, we are all being worked on. God is at work and He's patient and He's bearing with us and He's, He's tolerant of our failures and He doesn't slap us every time we do something. In fact, He never treats us as we deserve, right? He always treats us with kindness, always with grace. Yes, He chastises. Yes, He'll come in and He'll paddle you really good sometimes and I've been on the end of that rod. But it's never what I really deserved. It's always gentle and loving and restorative. He's bringing me back to Himself. Look for that. Patient bearing. Looking how you look at other people. And finally, unity of the Spirit. Let me do this very quickly. In the bond of peace. He's saying, I want you to be eager. This eagerness, this word means zealous. It means spare no effort. An aggressive relentlessness to be unified. A disposition towards unity. It should break our hearts when we see political fighting where the word, the name calling is horrendous. Just this week, the things that I heard said about, about Barack Obama, I don't care what you think about Barack Obama. It does not matter. There is no place for that in the Christian's vocabulary, yes? And as your pastor, I'm begging you not to engage in that. I know that he's not the best. But the name-calling and the pejorative terms need to stop. Okay? Please. Now, I know, I know nobody here, I'm speaking of the choir, nobody here is doing that. But maybe you know somebody that is. Well, you tell them I said. We have got to start being kind and looking for unity. A true heart, a statesman heart will reach out and try to find common ground. And if there's no common ground, if there's true evil, then you have to call it what it is. I'm not saying we compromise our beliefs or our orthodoxy. But I'll tell you, this has ripped the church apart for centuries. And I'm hoping that here at Christ the King, that if you will listen and follow the guidance of your pastor and the other elders in this church that we will find ways in which we can create unity not only within the, the confines of our fellowship and our walls here, but with other people of other races, of other beliefs without compromising our orthodoxy. I'm not saying we do that at all. Care, the eagerness for unity 
is a character that God is asking. Listen, folks, he's asking that you build on this foundation. Here it is. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. A sevenfold description. Maybe you hadn't noticed this before, but in Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul lays out a sevenfold dazzling description of unity. He uses the word one seven times. And here's what he says. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And now notice what he does with these words. It's, it's beautiful. One God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in you all. Again, he uses, as we talked about last week, a four-dimensional uh, 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 description of our unity. A sevenfold, which is uh, the number of perfection in the Bible. He's saying perfect unity built, uh, builds a foundation for this structure. Maybe he's hearkening to the temple. He's hearkening certainly to the body. The four dimensions of spaciousness that we are to have towards one another are built on this one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's truly remarkable. And all Paul is doing is re, uh, restating, listen carefully now, he's restating a prayer from John 17 that our Lord Jesus Himself prayed, and you know the words, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. The name which You have given Me, keep them in this name, that they may be one. Here it is. Even as You and I are one. This was at the very heart, folks, of our Lord Jesus' prayer for His church, those that are named by His name, Christian. He's beseeching us to walk in this way. And the only way you can do that is by looking at the man who in his being perfected each and every one of these. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, praying for His enemies as they drove the nails into His hand, as they beat Him, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Restoring those who betrayed Him, Peter and the other disciples, restoring them and saying, come back to Me. And us, every single time we have fallen, He says, come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take My yoke, listen, take My yoke upon you, learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly. He uses exactly the same two words as Paul uses. I'm humble, I'm lowly in heart, I'm gentle, come to Me. And of course, have this mind among yourselves which 
was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but instead he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. On the cross, folks, Jesus did for us all of this. Not, listen carefully now, please, not so that you would not have to do it. Not so that you wouldn't have to be humble and gentle and patient and forbearing and struggle for unity and be Not so that you wouldn't have to do that. He did it so that you would be able to do it. Don't say, oh, I can't, I can't. Yes, you can. He died so that you would be able to do it. He took the fear and the risk and the danger of all of those things. You don't have to hold up a false front. You can let people know you and you can be known. First with Him and then with others. Will you do it? Will you trust Him with that part of your life? I pray you'll do it. Let's pray. Father, uh, these are uh, tall orders and very difficult for many of us. We struggle with our pride and we don't want to let anybody in behind the curtain because if they saw us, I think we're afraid, Father, that if anybody saw us the way you see us, they would reject us. They would say, no, I can't. I can't know that person. They're too bad or they're too whatever. But you know us that way and you've accepted us. And in so doing, I pray that you will remove the fear from each of us and let our hearts be open to others. Help us to be humble and gentle and patient, forbearing in love, striving, striving for unity and the bond of peace. We pray that that would occur here at Christ the King in this fellowship and that it would be so profound and so real that others would recognize that God is among us truly. We pray that you'll do that. Help us. Help us. Amen.